Welcome to The Vault. Tune in every week to unlock the marketing secrets of some of the fastest growing businesses. You'll hear practical tips, strategies, and case studies that will help you build incredible marketing campaigns for your business. And now, here's your host, Stacey Keogh. Welcome to The Vault Podcast. Performance coach Sarah Milne-Rowe has made a career out of teaching business high flyers to achieve their goals. In today's episode, she shares with us the techniques that can superpower our energy and success. Wishing to be better at something lies at the heart of modern life. A bad week to a better week, a frustrated parent to a better parent, an anxious speaker to a better speaker, a burnt out colleague to a better colleague. Doing anything new or better might sound simple, but in practice it can be tricky. Sarah was commissioned by Penguin to author the book, The Shed Method which is a mind management system that offers practical advice for improving your decision-making. Through a series of practices and clear steps, the SHED method will help readers become a happier, healthier, and more confident version of themselves. Making better decisions is the key to feeling braver, overcoming obstacles, and finding the energy and determination to create a life that you want. Based on 10 years of coaching high performers and a full of step-by-step advice, this interview with Sarah Milne-Rowe will change the way you think about life, work, and relationships. She's been featured in Rave Magazine, The Evening Standard, and various other publications. So I'm really excited to unlock the vault and explore this incredible interview with Sarah Milne-Rowe. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to The Vault. Hello, Stacey. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited for you to be here today. You're a person I've been waiting to interview for quite some time. And where I wanted to kickstart us today was beginning, right back at the beginning, really. I'd love you to begin the show today by telling us a little bit about how you got started in your career and and sort of what your first job was. Well, I think I have to sort of say right at the very beginning that as a child, I was completely passionate about performance and dance and theatre and music in particular. Um, so I was one of those probably very irritating young people that spent a lot of their time in classes and making up plays. And so uh, the reason I say that is that I was lucky, I think, to have some brilliant teachers who enabled me to get to quite a high standard in the violin when I was quite young and also to be able to dance when I was quite young as well. And and it was because of those teachers that I thought, well, actually, I'd quite like to be a teacher too. So my first job, that's taking away all the sort of restaurants that you work in when you're trying to earn money and, uh, you know, doing Saturday jobs in shops and stuff. But the first proper job of my career post-university was as a drama teacher. And I sort of think I see that sort of 12 years of my life there is in challenging comprehensives in London. And I see that part of my uh, life really as my my most solid learning experience. It's sort of my MBA really. And, and a lot of what I do now comes from insights and experiences that I had as a teacher. So that was my first paid job was working with 11 to 18 year olds in, in quite challenging situations with quite challenging backgrounds. And I learned a lot about how I could be the most useful teacher to them. And also they taught me a lot about what being a good teacher and what enabled them to learn quickly and who they learned quickly from and, and why. So yeah, that was, that was how I started. 
It sounds like you've got a really, really big interest in the way people behave and how to be useful. I can see where all of that has sort of stemmed from. So that's that's great. We're going to dig into that a little bit later in this interview. But what does it talk me through sort of what happened? So you were you were teaching and there's obviously been a progression into what you do now. So what did that journey look like or, or sort of what, what happened? What happened after you were a teacher? So I was a teacher and then um, I got pregnant, actually. And what I love about pregnancy is it makes you stop and sort of reassess. So I had some time out of being a teacher and made me think that actually some of the things that I'd learned, particularly from detentions, actually working with kids that had been on report and were being particularly tricky, I used them as a little bit of a case study and research for a year. And and they gave me some real insight into um, what made them want to learn. And so I just thought that the insight from that was just too useful just to keep teaching, although teaching actually in education is still at the heart of everything that I do. But uh, it was in that gap that enabled me to stop, reflect and think, actually, what, what else could I do? Because I, I didn't, I knew what I didn't want to do. And that was to be a teacher forever and, and be uh, resentful and, and bitter about it. So I wanted to, uh, to go when I felt really enthused by it, if that makes sense. And also, it just happened that a friend of mine had a business and she was moving out of London and had some clients and she was doing some presentation skills training at the time. And she said, would you, would you take over some of my clients? And so I did and absolutely loved it. And it was the sort of performance element of impact and influence that I practiced with them. And so that made me think, actually, some of this stuff that I'm working on is really valuable for corporations. Um, So that really made me and gave me the sort of confidence, I suppose, and courage to step away and think, actually, I'd quite like to set up my own business. And that's what you do now. So you are now a performance coach performance coach yes and we've been in existence since 2008 and um yeah we we continue to learn from our clients but on the whole we're 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 a small enterprise that works with leaders and leaders and leadership teams to help them achieve more and keep learning and live better and stay strong so those those are the areas we work in yeah. So your business is, is coaching impact and maybe explain a little bit about what, what is a performance coach? Cause I think, you know, there's a lot of, we hear the word coaching out there a lot and, uh, and there's many different aspects to that, or, or perhaps from your view, there isn't. Um, but maybe talk to us a little bit about what it is that you, what it is that you do. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because I think coaching is becoming a slightly redundant word in the sense that it's got very, very many different meanings depending on who you, who you talk to. So, I like the term performance coach because there's a pure coach and then there's a coach that nudges. And I know that I got better at playing the violin and I got better at sports and I got better as a dancer by being quite strongly nudged by someone who had sort of knew what it was to be good and knew what it was like to be better. And so I think we go in, we, we have a sort of mantra in our in our team that says, you know, we nudge and you choose. So the client always chooses, but we will nudge based on our experience of working with other people and share some practice that other people use so they can choose whether they find that useful or not and if they want to experiment with that. So yeah, so performance coaching is about nudge, but it's also about it's very results focused and it's and most people want to be better at something. So it's about defining what they want to be better at and being a useful partner to helping them be better at it. I like the word nudge. 
think that's good. It's kind of pushing people in the right direction and hurting them towards what it is that they're trying to achieve rather than perhaps one of my associations with coaching in the past. And, I, and we've actually touched on this in a previous episode of this podcast, which is the difference between a coach and a mentor. And I know offline before you and I have sort of t- uh, had this conversation and I've, I've expressed some of, you, of my frustrations before, sometimes with coaching in the sense that people just asking questions. And sometimes I just need someone to tell me what to do. So, you know, I completely, I guess, admire the, your approach to it and how that works, because I think that's incredibly powerful and and definitely does help people perform better when you can give the right direction, give a solution, and then also give them the skills that they need to actually achieve whatever it is that they're trying to achieve, you know? Well, I think, you know, it's 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 different for different people and it's finding your style of coach that you want to work with. And I think the most important is that, thing is that you're never attached to whether you as the coach are right or wrong, but you are free to offer what you notice works for other people. And that's the model we use. And it's not for everybody, but it's the model that we stand by. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what you talked about earlier with regards to your teaching in terms of observing what it was that people needed from you as a teacher and understanding how you could be a better teacher by just observing what was required. And I think that that I can see the thread of sort of how that's all weaved together. So it's great. Yeah. And also, I think why I really like working with leaders is that, uh, in a way, those children that were tricky and who were very adamant about which lessons they chose to learn in and which lessons they chose not to learn in, it was really down to the teacher. And I learned so much about what effective leadership of a classroom was in that time. And just by asking them some very useful questions as to, <laughs> as to why they turned up, you sort of got to some really useful nuggets that are useful for leaders wherever they are, actually, in a classroom or anywhere else. And that was too useful, that insight to just leave in a classroom. Yeah, I like that you've said that, because when I think back to my school days, for example, there were certainly classes where I behaved <laughs> and there were certainly classes where I didn't. And I'm just trying to think whether how much of a role the teacher played in that. And I think you're right. I think it was a lot to do with that. I mean, there were certain, you know, you always had these teachers where you knew you couldn't mess with and they were the scary ones and the ones that you just kind of were quiet and did what they said. And I'm not necessarily, that was the best learning experience for me either, because it was too, too abrupt and too, you know, constrained, I suppose. But then some of the times were the teachers that, or I guess the classes that I performed best in were the one, the teachers that I respected and that, and that had a really great way of, of leading the classroom. So I, I just had that realization. I think that's great. And actually the other thing I just thought about then as you were speaking was how relevant that is in any business, because why wouldn't I as a business owner have those conversations with my team to understand what is it that motivates you to be here every day? What do you like about this job? What do you like about the clients that we're working with? The more that I can understand about what what they like about this or what motivates them, that just gives me so much power to be able to continue to deliver a fantastic culture and a fantastic work environment. Yeah. And they become part of that responsibility too. You know, they're not done to, they are part of the whole system of learning then. I think you're you're absolutely right. And and, And actually, what was also very interesting is the things that they told me then are just so relevant to any leader of any small business, big business, you know, it's, it's not rocket science what they tell you, you know. You know, they said, uh, if I just, the three key things that will surprise nobody listening to this, but 
and we've all got teachers that do these three things in our lives, I think. Um, one, that they are palpably passionate about their subject. You know, so it's almost like that contagion of passion that you could, I mean, I can remember teachers that had that and you just sort of wanted to understand the subject the way they did because they clearly loved it so much. And the second thing is that they they really liked working um, with teachers where they couldn't predict exactly what they were going to do with the content. So they went there with an air of expectation thinking, oh, how's she or he going to make this work today? It's not just going to be a worksheet or, and which has real relevance to meetings, I think, in, in, in some of the uh, businesses that I work with. It's the same meeting and the, people sit in the same places and, and it's the same way of working. How does a leader set up a meeting that actually people want to attend and have a role to play in it? And the third thing was, and this was particularly significant for, um, for the types of young people I was working alongside, which was that they felt significant by that teacher. I do believe brilliant teachers are, are just brilliant leaders. You could put them anywhere, actually, because you're, you're trying to manage often in state schools, 30 different needs in one time. And for them to be able to feel significant amongst one in 30, I think is a real skill of a leader is I've seen you, I get you, I understand how to get the best out of you. And those these children were telling me that they can recognise that very, very easily. And when they feel it, and when they recognise it, they want to learn from it, which I just think is very, very important. I totally relate to that, actually. I'm thinking, again, kind of, you know, teachers coming to my mind where I'm thinking, you knew when they were paying attention to you and when they actually cared and, and were trying to do their best to help me perform my best. And that definitely made an impact. And I, I have actually never made this correlation before. So I know it sounds simple, but it's, yeah, it's absolutely true. Let's talk about that, I guess, how that translates into leaders. I mean, what, what's, what are some of the specific challenges that you, for example, would go in and help leaders with? Well, it depends. But on the whole, it's helping them stay strong or well enough to lead others, really. And actually, I think the, the most important thing right now is because there are so many competing priorities for people who are running businesses, so many potential distractions. It's helping leaders sort of deploy their energy around the things that make the biggest difference to the success of their business. And sometimes they're very clogged with all sorts of places they could pay attention. And I think often the role I'm playing or members of my team are playing is helping them really be clear around where's the main effort right now and being strong enough to say no to certain things and, and yes to others and understanding, you know, that they can't be 110% on everything that they're doing. Uh, and actually defining where they do want 110% means that they're going to have to be okay about 65% in the other areas. And that's okay. And that's a conscious and deliberate choice. So I would say that's a really key area right now. I think a lot of any kind of business owner can relate to that, can't they? Because it's you do feel that you're often pulled in many different directions and you're wearing all these different hats and everything seems like a priority. But I, I like that you've mentioned there that it's about a choice because I think sometimes you, if I've, we can, fit, we can get very down on ourselves or feel guilty for not giving 110% in every single area that we want to, to sort of perform well in. But I think if it is about prioritizing and choosing, you know, these two or three key areas that we really, really want to focus on and that are really important to us. And I guess if I use myself as an example of, you know, an area that's really important to me is focusing on growing the business, it's working on the business rather than getting bogged down in the detail of the day-to-day -day of requests from clients and all this kind of stuff that distracts me from growth and business development and all of that kind of stuff that's important to me. 
And if I make that conscious decision that actually I'm okay with not giving all of my effort to fixing problems or being a firefighter and I'm, I am focusing the core amount of my effort on development, which is something that's important to me specifically, and I make that conscious decision, that makes it a much, it, it feels better than, <laughs> than feeling like actually I'm giving everything 50% of my energy, which is a bit shit really, you know, it doesn't feel good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that takes effort. It's also about as, as a business grows, you, you're needed in different places. And I was just spending some time today with a client and she's been very much in the detail of picking up a, a, a division of the business from being underperforming to now performing well. And, uh, you know, her, her desire is to not be as available now. But her habit is to absolutely solution and get into the detail. Uh, and so it's taking her effort to, in a way, reboot her, her usefulness. And so it's helping her believe and, and work out what the practice is, because, you know, knowing that is not enough, but it's turning it into some action and some regular practice that's going to enable her to support it. Yes, it's very, I can relate. I, this, I love this client is real. I can totally relate to him because it's very easy to get reactive and just, you know, be very responsive to a situation or whatever it is that you're trying to, to fix. And funnily enough, another client of mine actually gave me some advice a few years back where he actually said to me, he's like, most people can fix their own problems. Actually, if you just didn't respond, if you're used to responding within sort of 30 minute window of every message or email or text or whatever it is that's coming into you to firefight, don't respond for two hours. Two hours is an acceptable window for most people to you have not responded to. And then funnily enough, most 60% of those requests or those whatever they are sort of coming in at you are often solved on their own. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's all sorts of tricks you can do for that. You know, you can just say I'm not available and then you can only phone me if it's a real emergency. I had a client who made that rule, you know, only phone me if it's a real emergency. And she got like, I think, two phone calls a week. And they really were you know, they needed her. Yeah. But it made them have to consider whether that really was. So in a way, you're helping them break a habit as well, which is always running to the leader to sort it. Yeah. Well, I might go off on a tangent here, but it's more about often, and I deal with this within my team too, where it's, you know, they feel like, oh, I have to be reactive and I have to respond to that client immediately and I have to do this. And I'm like, our clients love us for that. You know, they really do. However, we're teaching them a bad habit that we are that responsive. So, for example, you know, if we, if we are responding to a request within a few minutes, that if it does take us two or three hours to respond to an email, that that for them feels like we're not on top of things, you know, and that's that's just not true. Uh, it's just that we've we've created this perception that we're like available at all times, at all moments of the day and night, and all this kind of stuff. It's just it's not it's not healthy for anybody, is it? That's where people get burnouts and feel stressed and and are just not productive. I want to talk to you a little bit about your shed method because this is something that you obviously talk a lot about. Let's start with what is the shed method. So the shed method helps people, I think, really, what the aim is to, to bring their body and their mood and then their mind energy together in order to make the most useful choices. And uh, what I'm noticing and what I have noticed, um, what we've all noticed really, is that actually you might be working with a leader on a strategic decision, helping them think that through, but actually they're depleted in their shed. And the shed is their sleep, hydration, exercise and diet. So it's putting shed as the foundation for making great choices that actually 
it's a chain. And when our body has the fuel that it's needed, we can then, you know, have the most useful mood, which allows our mind energy, which actually we need because it makes us beautifully and brilliantly human. We can then make and apply that effort that our mind energy needs to make the most useful choices. So it's sort of called shed because sheds at the basis of our choices. It's not the only thing, but it's the foundation that enables us to be more deliberate about where we want to spend our energy. Yeah, it does. And I think the thing is, we, we all know this, right? Like it's everybody knows that if sleep is one of these things that's and how much is it in the media at the moment, people talking about sleep, I feel like it's everywhere. Because you've got these execs, um, or, you know, celebrities or whoever it is claiming that they don't sleep very often. Um, that puts an extraordinary amount of pressure on <laughs> people, entrepreneurs and other business owners and things like that, who feel like they should be trying to keep up with that. Who is it that famously only sleeps four hours a night or, or claims that they do? Oh, lots of them. I think it was Bill Clinton, actually, who said some of the worst decisions I've ever made have been because of lack of sleep, but he was surviving on four or five, you know. And, uh, but then some people, you know, there are, I think, minority of people who can survive on or operate quite well on four or five hours sleep, but it's certainly not the majority of us. No, actually, and I did attend a workshop recently where they talked something up the this subject came up as well i just feel like it's a very hot topic where you know i think i can't remember the exact stat but it was less than one percent of the world's population that it can actually perform on less than four to five hours sleep which is you know definitely not the majority of us and it's almost um just a ridiculous expectation to try to get to for the majority and then obviously you know hydration exercise diet all that kind of thing just makes sense for making you feel good and wanting to put making making better decisions it does make sense you know it's putting fuel in your tank, really. And, and it's not saying I'm certainly not an expert in sleep, hydration, exercise or diet, but I am useful, I think, to, to leaders in helping them make some choices around what they need in order to perform at their best and, and to try things out. I love helping people be a scientist on their own behavior. And sometimes we're just led by habits because we've always done it that way. And sometimes we just need to sort of stop take a look and think, actually, is that the most useful thing to be doing to achieve what I want to achieve? And when we can look at and making sure that we've got enough fuel in our tank, that's a good place to start. So I suppose the shed method is a way of offering some practices and some routines based on, you know, people that I've worked with, that we've worked with, borrowed a little bit from science and, and supported by sort of thousands of hours of coaching people, really. It offers some examples of how others do it to hopefully stimulate people to think, okay, I, I might have a go with that or I've tried that. That doesn't work. But at least, you know, I've got some ideas here. For me is if I'm not feeling great or I don't feel like I've made great decisions or I'm feeling stressed, I ha I consciously now do think like, how much sleep have I got? Have I been drinking enough water? Um, when was the last time I actually exercised and felt good about that? You know, what have I been eating that makes me feel well? Like it's just sort of that fundamental feel good about yourself. Take care of yourself before you can actually push yourself to a limit, whether that's mentally or physically or, you know, whatever within business. So I think it's great. Another thing that I read about in your books, and I'd like you to talk a bit about is the three brains, because I find that absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so walk us through that. It's simple, but people find it useful to think of themselves as having three brains rather than one. And by treating the brain not as one, but as three, each with a different role, we are more able to achieve our full potential. So it's sort of looking at how humans work in a very simplistic way. And I've called these brains in the book, the human brain, the reptile brain and the dog brain. And most of us believe that, you know, we are 
we have a human brain that we're doing most of our thinking from. And that's right, because the human brain does our deliberate conscious thinking and, you know, it helps us do fantastic things that make us different from any other animal on the planet. And it helps us do logical thinking and make decisions and listen well and hold two counter ideas at the same time. It's, it's very, very clever and very, very brilliant. But that's quite a slow system compared with two other systems, which is the reptile brain, which controls our, it's the most primeval part of our brain. It controls our basic functions. So thankfully, it's, uh, you know, making our heart tick and digesting our food and blinking. And we're doing all those things out of our conscious awareness. And it's looking, it's keeping us alive. It's based on urges and impulses. And at its best, it just carries on keeping us alive. And it's looking out for um, four Fs. Where's our food coming from? Is this a foe or is this a friend? And then there's one other very basic F that we all need if we're going to procreate. So it's very, very basic in that regard. And it does all of it out of our conscious awareness. So it's fabulous. And it's got a, like a motorway between our gut and all the rest of our body. And it's, it's picking up um, bodily sensations as well. And it's, again, very, very uh, strong partnership with the third brain, which is the dog brain, which is like the conduit between the human and the reptile. And the dog brain is our emotional hub. It's principally um, intuitive and it's trying to decide our mood. And it's trying to decide our mood based on what our body is doing. So the reptile brain gives us bodily sensations, which the dog brain interprets and decides, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing when my heart is racing or when I'm going red or uh, is this excitement or is this fear? And in the book, I describe three reactions that the dog brain gives us. It can bark, it can um, wag or it can cower which is sort of very much aligned with the fight or flight, but it picks up a signal, a bodily sensation. It makes a very fast decision as to whether this is a threat or reward. And it either shuts down our capacity for a human brain because it thinks it's so much of a threat. Don't need you, human brain. We haven't got time for any logical thought. I'm just going to do this thing. So it's the brain that sort of, you know, shouts at some random person when they, when they cut us up when we're driving our car, or it's the, that's a bark, you know, or it's the, reaction that um, someone asks us to speak at a meeting and we just decide we can't and we shut down and we cower. It's the one where somebody says to us, oh, uh, Stacey, uh, could you just do that thing before you go home? And you go, yeah, of course. And then you walk away and think, no, I can't, actually. I really haven't got any time to do that extra thing. But I've just said yes, because it makes like your dog brain saying, please, that person, wag and um and go off so it's it's a very it, it in a way that they're, they're put simply i suppose our three brains are in a perpetual tussle between our conscious deliberate thoughts and our faster impulses and urges and we are absolutely wired to communicate up and down reptile to dog dog to human back again to make what we do as automatic as possible because frankly we haven't got enough energy to think about everything we do so we want to try and make things automatic but sometimes the choices we make are not the ones that actually, if we'd given them a little bit more time, we would have necessarily made. So we're being bossed by our dog and our reptile. So it's just understanding we fundamentally have these two systems. One's very fast and one's much slower. And we work best when all three are aligned. So the book is saying, you know, how do we do that? What's the practice to make sure that our three brains, which all give us really useful information, are aligned and speaking to each other as opposed to being bossed by a faster system? I think that's a good way to think about that, because initially when I first started learning about this, I thought, well, obviously you want to try to cultivate your human brain as much as possible and, and lean on that where that your human brain should be the one making all the decisions all the time. And I think, you know, I've got an example of when I don't know what it is about whenever I get on the call to my bank, 
I literally lose my shit. Like, I don't know why. It's totally not my nature. It's not rational. It's not how, who I am as a person. But I don't know what it is that any time that a person from a bank says, no, that's not possible, or this is going to take three days to do this, or we have to send this out to you in the post, I absolutely lose it. And it's totally irrational. And even actually just talking about it now, I can feel myself getting worked up. And I'm like, why is this happening to me? And it, sometimes I get off those calls when I've absolutely gone crazy. And this poor person on the end of the phone, and they're probably just thinking, what a crazy person. And I just think, why have I reacted that way? And I just think, you know, I should have taken a second. I probably should have put them on pause or, you know, on hold and taken a few deep breaths and done something to try to get my, to, to actually have a reasonable conversation with that person. But for whatever reason, I just can't. It's just a, something that takes over me. And that's, that's my dog brain, I suppose. That's your reptile and your dog brain working together. So what's interesting is that you have a bodily, just talking about it, you have a bodily sensation, I assume, as that's what you were saying when oh, you were talking about sweating. it, calling it. <laughs> yeah. And that's the chain. You get a body feel it sensation and then it's interpreted by your dog brain and it's saying whether it's good or bad. And so your your reptile has given you a sensation of irritation from this guy, from this guy or this woman at the other end. Your dog brain's decided they're a pain. They're going to make your life difficult. They're a threat. Shut down the human brain. Just shout at them. <laughs> exactly what happens yeah and that's the habit because you know that and, and the thing is the wonderful thing about the dog brain is it stores the memory so it takes even more effort for you to update your story about a bank manager mm. do you know that's so true and I'm having a slight flashback to a moment where I was in Thailand alone I was traveling by myself and all of my cards were cancelled by my bank and I remember getting on the phone with them I was stuck at an airport got on the phone with my bank and they just absolutely denied to help me at all. They just said, no, we'll ship the cards out to you in five business days. And I was like, that's useless. I'm in a foreign country alone. You need to figure out how to unblock these cards and give me access. And just as you've said that, I've just gone back in time to that position. And ever since then, I cannot have a conversation, not a reasonable conversation with somebody from a bank. <laughs> Well, that's just a fantastic example, Stacey, because it's, in fact, you know, it's the positive intent of your dog brain when it's speaking to a bank manager is not to put you back in that what was felt then and possibly could have been life-threatening situation. You in, a, you know, on your own backpacking with no money. That's pretty, you know, that's not, that's quite a serious situation to be in. So it's keeping that data. And it's, it's extraordinary the way it can boss us like that. I mean, it's like it's, there's so many names I just couldn't call my children because I had had experiences with children in my classrooms that actually even just thinking of the name made me feel ill, <laughs> you know, or angry or, you know, whatever. I can't go to the dentist without feeling my heart rate pump even when I'm walking to it because of, a, you know, an experience that I had when I was six. My husband can fall asleep in the chair when he's at the dentist. He's never had anything that is in any way disrupted the dog brains and the reptiles impression around whether it's going to be life-threatening. So I think that's a fantastic example. And you know, how that plays out in corporations is I have clients that say to me, I only have to see that guy walk towards me down the corridor and I can, and my stomach starts turning. Or, you know, I only have to see this person walk in and I feel completely enlivened. You know, it's, it is a very much a, a primeval physical response that we can have to situations. So how do we get more control of that? How do I how do I overcome my issue with my bank manager? You have to apply the effort to know that you're going to be on that call and it's likely to kick off. Your dog brain and your reptile are likely to kick off. So what what I would call it is you need a pressure practice. And you can't find a pressure practice in the moment of pressure. You have to have evolved your pressure practice outside of pressure. 
So if you think about, you know, in my world, when you're putting on a show, you the whole process of putting a show onto an audience has increased pressure throughout the whole of the rehearsal process. So that by the time we have no text and we have an, a live audience and we have lights and we're on stage, we're ready for it, like any, you know, event. So you have to think about that as being your pressure point. So therefore, what's your practice when you can feel those heart palpitations immediately kick off when somebody's saying to you, I'm sorry, Stacey, you're going to have to wait three hours for that or you or three days for that or no, I can't do that. You're going to have to have assumed it and applied a practice. And so, um, you know, I would say this would be the chain that I would offer a client is you decide on a body position that you will take at that time. So you might immediately feel yourself, you will probably feel yourself tense. So have a, a body position that actually means if you just lean back in the chair or, you know, if you're standing up, pull your shoulders back, whatever that is, what's the body posture that's going to enable you to have a different mood? Breathe out. So you said, I think earlier on, I should probably have breathed. Yes, you probably should have done it. So it's, a, it's a great way. It costs nothing. It's a resource that we have inside us. If we did but use our breath more accurately or more usefully, I think we could interrupt and get all of it, get the human brain back in the game, really. In my um, offer to clients, I say body and breath return you to neutral. Then you have a moment of choice. And, and then you've got three things, a trigger. So I'm thinking like I had a client who, a bit like you, had one, he was a lawyer. He had a particular client that used to, he used to always end up shouting at. And he asked me to work with him to control his anger response with this client. So I asked him a question and said, have you got any moment where you've had a conversation with this guy and you haven't lost your temper? And he'd had one small little moment about two years earlier in a black cap when he'd had quite a successful or certainly not uh, an angry conversation with his client. So he then uh, bought himself a little toy taxi like black cab and he put that on his desk. So every time he saw this client's name come up before he answered the call, set his body took a slow exhalation, picked up the phone and connected with the black cab. So connected to a time when he had managed to control his temper and have a reasonable conversation. So there's a trigger there. Whatever your most useful trigger is, have something that it could be a picture. It could be, you know, just a memory like that memory took you back to Thailand. You can have a positive memory where actually you've had a really useful conversation. Sometimes it might be a, a really conversation, a good conversation you've had with a client where you could have lost your temper, but you decided not to. There's normally a practice in it. It's just helping the client unpick it and have a strategy, a pressure practice strategy that's very thought through and you can apply it when the moment of pressure arises. Yeah, I love this. This is making so much sense. <laughs> and then also, you know, as well as a trigger, you, there's other couple of things that you could use as well, which is... Um, appreciate, which is what I've just said, appreciate when you can have a difficult conversation, Stacey, which I know you can have in a positive way, link to that and have a self-talk that prepares you. I, you know, the way of remembering it for me is boats because it, a boat can take you from one place to another. So body, <laughs> oxygen, body and oxygen, breath returns you to neutral, have a trigger, appreciate when you've done it well before and have some self-talk that supports it. So instead of it saying, you know, that's that irritating git that's trying to make my life, you know, difficult, you say you have a different thing, like I'm going to stick with this because ultimately it's going to be a win-win. Good. I like this. I don't even care that we're not talking about marketing because I feel like all of this stuff is so relevant for business owners that I just think, you know, we all go, we all have these reactions. Hopefully they do. Hopefully it's not just me. 
um, in different situations within within business and whether you know whether we're self-employed and working on our own and dealing with difficult clients whatever it might be or we do have a huge team of people that we're trying to manage there's always situations where that we need to be able to manage the way we react and the way we perform in front of people so I'm just I'm loving this actually your human performance is at the base of any successful reputation or profit in a company, fundamentally. If you're not in great shape and you're not able to get the best out of the conversations that you have in your limited amount of time that you have, you are unlikely to achieve what you want. So it's worth paying attention to the way that you're leading you. In the book, you talk a lot about energies as well. Do you want to touch on that really briefly for me? In order to get the best out of our three brains, we have five different sources of energy. We have body energy, mood energy, mind energy, which are directly related to getting the best out of the brain. So, you know, the chain behind the brains is that in order to make any better choice, the body energy provides the fuel for the reptile brain to just carry on looking after the basic needs of our body. That's what we want the brain to just, we just want the reptile just to tick along nicely, thank you. And it can only do that if it's got the body energy that uh, feeds it. So that's, you know, shed. What are your shed practices that's going to feed your reptile brain so it can just carry on feeling comfortable and happy, just doing what it does best? And the dog brain needs the most useful mood energy. So here's a question, Stacey. How would you describe, what would be the words that you would describe as the most useful mood for you to perform at your best? The most useful mood? Yeah. Well, obviously when I'm happy or excited. Yeah. Keep going. Oh, more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, when I'm enthusiastic about what I'm doing, when yeah. I feel passionate about what I'm doing. Yeah. When I have purpose. Yeah. That's a big one for me. When I'm doing something, I guess it's kind of related to enjoying, but also uh I'm valuing what I'm doing. I'm feeling like we're moving in the right direction. I think all of that is just what makes me feel good. Yeah, progress. Yes, solutions. Uh, exactly. And these are the sorts of words that clients will typically say is exactly that. And calm is another one that often comes in. When I'm calm, I'm, I know that I'm better. If I'm solution focused, if I'm curious. So it's understanding what's the most useful mood energy for you to be the best person that you can be to achieve what you want to achieve be it you know wherever you are in your business or as a parent or as a friend or as a spouse you know any of those things so so your mood energy it's what we've just said the practice that we've just described is helping us stay in the most useful mood to get the action or the result that you want so there's the mood energy that you can apply and then that enables the human brain to have the mind energy that it needs to put in the effort so, you know, whatever it is that you want to be better at, you need your mind energy available and your mind energy is limited. It doesn't go on forever. So that's why we need to have that chain working. Body energy, mood energy provides then the space for our energy to do what it needs to do best, our mind energy. And then we've got two other energies that are a source of helping our brains be their best. And that is, and you mentioned one of them, purpose energy and people energy. So purpose energy is is the energy you get from doing something that's beyond self-interest often. So it's the, it's, the, it's the energy that actually can sometimes trump shed. You know, you can be knackered for night after night if you're staying up looking after somebody that you love. It's the purpose energy that enables, you know, refugee families to get into boats that they know aren't safe because the purpose of getting their family to a better future is worth it. 
So it's a very, very powerful force, um, purpose energy. And often when I'm working with leaders or business owners, it's helping them connect to why did they set this business up in the first place? So when they're hitting a moment of struggle to connect with the purpose and the longer term goal, which is often beyond self-interest, can often give them a source or a surge that will take them through that little extra bit. So that's the purpose energy. And then there's the people energy. You know, who do you have around you that, you know, gives you energy? (laughs) You know, we all have people in our life that boost us and um, cheer us and make us feel like it's worth worth it. Um, And then there are people that, you know, sap your energy. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) or drain us. And and the other good question is, you know, who are you to other people? Mm. Yeah, great point. Um, So there's, you know, there's five energies that you can absolutely more... Um, deliberately tap into to get the best out of your three brains and your performance. And the book takes each energy one by one to share um, how other people connect to it. So yeah, we've alluded to this. Obviously, you have documented all of this in your book, which is titled The Shed Method. What has the book done for you for, for your business or perhaps your own ambitions in the direction that you're moving in? It's been extraordinary, really. And I think I'm only really now experiencing what it can do. So I was never somebody that had an ambition to write a book. I was fortunate enough to be commissioned by Penguin to write it, which was great. But I just thought, okay, so then I've got to write it now. So I think to answer your question, it does quite a few things. Firstly, it really enabled me to clarify what I thought about about this, get it down on paper, makes you be clear. And then having written it, it's extraordinary the impact it has really. So I think it gives your business credibility. I think it gives you um, something to refer to and others to refer to where all of your thoughts are in one place. I think it has opened up a whole area for talks, which I wasn't doing prior to writing the book. It gives you um, content if you then want to, which I'm doing, as you know, Stacey, in a very uh, um, (laughs) limited way at the moment. But it's helped me really understand how I can use it to amplify some thoughts and recraft it and reposition it as content in different forms through social media, which I hadn't even thought of prior to writing a book. Yeah, I think it's a really useful thing to do. And then what sort of what happens next for you? Like, What's on the agenda? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, you won't be surprised to hear that my, my big why is to return all of this stuff back to education. So I, I, uh, I want to be much stronger in my message around the sort of United Nations goal number four, which is quality education. And I suppose the immediate next thing I'm doing is uh, in service to that is I'm doing a trek in Nepal. Um, never trekked in my life before, but I'm going to do it to try and raise £30,000 with five other women to build a school in a remote village in Nepal. So I'm going to do that and I'm going to try and track it and tell a story about it whilst I'm away. And ultimately, that's to raise, I suppose, the business's um, connection to uh, impacting education. And I would like fundamentally the Shed Method to be in schools to help young people have practical ways to manage themselves and lead themselves, learn faster about how they can be better for themselves and from, for others so they can reach their potential and, and achieve more than possibly they, they thought, which I know the education system is, is absolutely there to do. But I, I think there's real value in, in giving them some practical ways to lead themselves. 
That sounds so exciting. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I could just talk to you about this forever, but we're, so, we're out of time here. But um, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, because I think everything that we've gone through, you've almost done some live coaching for me just there in terms of things that I need to work on, which is excellent. And hopefully everybody doesn't mind listening to that. But just some of the practices that you've talked about in terms of how they can be implemented in business and just in your own personal life, I just think is so useful and so beneficial for people. So I just want to say a huge thank you for being here today. It's been really, really fantastic having you on the show. You're very welcome, Stacey. It's a pleasure. Brilliant. We'll see you soon. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. How fun was that interview with Sarah Milnro? I absolutely loved that process. She's just such a great person to spend time with and has awesome, awesome advice. So here are my top three attention grabbers from this episode. Attention grabber number one, make your shed your foundation. So in order for us to make better decisions, we need to have enough fuel in our tanks. And Sarah mentioned that twice throughout the podcast. And I totally believe it. I've read her book and I just know, looking back on some of the decisions that I make, if I ever look back and think, have I made a poor decision on this occasion? It usually can be traced back to my sleep, hydration, exercise, or diet. So I think making your shed your foundation was an absolute fantastic piece of advice for me to take away from that episode. Attention grabber number two, pressure practice. So thank you everybody for bearing through a little live coaching there from Sarah with regards to my issues around the bank. Um, But I thought what was awesome about that conversation was, you know, she gave some really practical advice. So the first thing was decide a body position or a posture that I go into the next time I have one of those conversations to focus on breath. So breathe out, you know, once I've got the body and the breath kind of returns me to neutral then I can connect to a time where I really have had control over my emotion in that in that kind of situation. And then the fourth point around that was to have some positive self-talk. So to tell a positive story, whether it's connecting to a memory, telling myself the, the outcome and what I'm trying to, to get from that, thinking about it in a really positive way. So I think putting some of those pressure practices into place is just really important. And I'm really looking forward to trying that out myself. Attention grabber number three, five energies. So Sarah talked us through the body, mood, mind, purpose, and people. And for this attention grabber, I want to think about the fifth energy, which was people. And most importantly, who am I to the people around me? So I think a lot of times when we're thinking about energies and people, it's like, you know, who am I surrounding myself with? Are they the right type of people? Am I getting the right advice? Am I spending time with the type of people that help me to either grow my business or perform better? And actually what I loved about this conversation with Sarah was she asked the question, you know, who are you to those around you? So it's putting that sort of reflection back onto yourself and thinking, yeah, who am I and how do people perceive me and what value do I bring them? And I think sort of really having a good think about who I am to the people around me is something that I've taken away from that conversation. I'm really eager to put some thought and process into. So thank you for tuning into this episode. I really encourage you to order a copy of The Shed Method by Sarah Milrow from Amazon. And also remember to connect with her via Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. I'll put the links in the show notes so that makes it nice and easy for you. But I really, really encourage you to do that and follow up with her, connect with her, send her messages, and just follow the work that she does. I think it's really, really fascinating, can help really any type of business. Thanks again for tuning in, and I can't wait to connect with you next week. 
You've just been listening to The Vault Podcast with Stacey Keogh. If you've enjoyed the show, she'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. And don't forget to head over to www.thevault.global for more free content that will help you build an effective marketing strategy.